So you want to find both of those and uh, hold your places. While y'all looking for that, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna go ahead and start. Um, I know that we uh, we all, we all understand this concept that when what we call the book of First Corinthians or the book of Second Corinthians, we, we understand that that that's it's not a it's a letter, it's a correspondence, it's it, it's a letter. So when when uh, the anointed ones who divided the Bible up, because Paul Paul didn't write these letters in chapter and verse, of course. And they divided them up later on when they put when it, when they decided that this letter of Paul's is going to be part of the canon, the Bible canon. Then they divided it up into chapter and verses. So what they did was because when you're writing a letter, you don't think in terms of a chapter, but but we do think in terms of a thought process. And Paul will he'll start a thought process and he'll follow through, and and that whole entire chapter normally. Most of the time where they divided these letters up into thought processes is what it amounts to, they did a pretty good job. Now, of course, as Brother David's pointed out several times, a lot, a lot of times you're better off going back three verses in the chapter before and beginning because that's where that thought process actually starts. So the thought process that he's dealing with in the whole, in this whole letter, first, uh, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians is the resurrection of this body based on the fact that Jesus has already been resurrected. That's the thought process that runs through this whole chapter. So before we get to where we're going to concentrate, in, in verse 1, he starts this whole, uh, this whole process out by saying this. He gives, he gives a description of what we call the gospel. When somebody asks you, what is the gospel? You can point them to these four verses. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, it says this. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. That is the gospel. To preach the gospel. That's it. That's it in a nutshell. Belief in those four Scriptures and a confession of that by mouth from the heart is all it requires to make it to heaven. That's what's known as simple salvation. Now, we love to overcomplicate things. We love to turn salvation into all these different things, and we like to add to it. We, we, we're, we're, we're the world's worst is at Jesus plus. Yeah, well, let you, yeah, you can do that, but you got to do this. you got to be baptized, or you got to speak in tongues, or you got to walk 40 miles backwards in the heat of the, you know, whatever, whatever, Jesus, but, that's, but, but that, that's all that's required. In Romans chapter 10, Paul says this, if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved, period. No questions asked. That's all it is. That, that, that is the gospel. That's the gospel right there. So beginning with what he says is the gospel, then he goes 
And he spends the rest of this chapter, all 58 verses of this chapter, are dealing with the idea that our bodies, this body that we live in, will be resurrected one day based on the fact that Jesus has already died and has already risen. He has already been resurrected. That's what makes, that's where we stand and our guarantee that this body will be resurrected. So the section of, of Paul's thought process, having covered that, that we're going to deal with tonight is in chapter, uh, in chapter 15, verses 20 through 28. Now, the, like I said, all of this is, all this is dealing with the resurrection, but these, this particular section right here deals with the resurrection. It sounds like I'm in a barrel, don't it? It sounds like I'm, somebody's with me or something, helping me out, repeating everything I say. It sounds to me like, anyway. <coughs> but what, but, but um, what he's going to be dealing with and what we're going to concentrate here in verse 20 through 28 is a particular, that, that's better, yeah, a, picture, a particular view of the resurrection that has to do with the end times that we don't hear a whole lot about. And if you know anything about me at all, you know, that's, that's, I love to talk about the end times. So in, in starting in verse, I'm going to read verses 20 through 28. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits, and uh, again, as always, I, I read the King James. I apologize to all y'all that don't. <laughs> and became the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but every man in his own order. Christ the first fruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is excepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Now that's as clear as crystal, right? If you go through and read that, that's as, that's as clear as a bell. No, it's not. I'm just kidding. We're going to go through this verse at a time. First Corinthians, first two verses, 21 and 22 says, For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. This simply states that at man's hand, Adam, sin came into the world. This happened, of course, when Adam agreed to take a bite from the fruit of the forbidden tree. This was a disobedience of God's command. One, that's all they had. Adam and Eve had one rule. That's it. They had one rule, and they couldn't keep it. One commandment, one rule. <coughs> the man bears the responsibility of the household. He is the priest of his house. This is why the Bible states that by man sin entered the world, and it doesn't say by woman sin entered the world. God held Adam responsible for the iniquity. Since sin came into the world by way of one man, 
It was necessary for the way to provide to allow the escape from death to come into the world by way of one man as well. One man, that's all it was. Sin came in by one man, and death came in. I, I mean, I mean, I mean uh, resurrection came in by one man. Um, now, in Genesis 3, this is kind of interesting. Let's go look at, at, the, at that sin, at the effects of that sin, what happened. In Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 13, it says, And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And see, she, she blamed it on somebody. Everybody blames it on It ain't never my fault. She could have said, You know, I, I broke your rule. I ate the fruit. But no, she, he, and, and of course, Adam turned around and did the same thing. He, she made me. She made me do it. He did, he, he's not any better. The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of their life. Now that implies that upon his belly he did not faint. A leak going away on his belly, and to this day they're crawling around on his belly, but this serpent, whatever this serpent looked like, was Satan, walked up to her upright as a man. And his curse was he had to crawl on his belly. Now, there's still some seraphims around, but they're standing by the throne of God. They're standing there, the seraphims. The word seraphim means fiery serpents. And there's two of them. One stands on each side of the throne, and they got six wings. Each one of them has got six wings, and they're fierce. They're fierce and strong and mighty. So this, this serpent, this whatever this serpent became, whatever it was before it became what we know as a snake, walked up to her. And talk to her, because eating the dust of the ground keeps it from talking. If it wasn't for that, snakes could talk to you to this day. Wouldn't it be nice when you find them rattlesnakes crawling through the yard? They, you know, you can't catch me. Run away. You know, <laughs> that'd be awful, wouldn't it? <laughs> and he said, "And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, speaking to the serpent still, and between thy seed and her seed. It'll bruise thy head." and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception in sorrow. Thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam, he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of your wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field, in the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. And Adam called his wife, wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Adam was the first man created by God. He was also the first man to break God's rule. I say rule because he only had one. And Eve was his helpmate, his wife, and the mother of all creation. Because of the rebellion and the sinning against God, these two had to suffer many things that all of humanity suffered for the very first time. Although it was Eve who ate of the tree first, then enticed Adam, the Bible says that responsibility for their actions square, laid responsibility for their actions square at the feet of Adam, what we just read in 1 Corinthians. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And again, Adam was the priest of his household. Therefore, he was held responsible. Now, 
at, at different times in my life, I've heard I've heard women say to me, and I've had I've heard women talking to each other, and and they'll say something along these lines. You know what? One of these days, when I get to heaven, and I can find Eve, I'm gonna drag her off in a corner, and man, her's gonna have man, her's gonna have a world of prayer. I'm I'm, I'm gonna tell her what for. I'm, I'm gonna tell her. But you know what? I've never heard a man say. I've never been in the field or on the job with a man and him stop and look up at the sky and say, you know what? When I get to heaven, me and Adam's gonna have a round or two. We're gonna, I've never heard a man say that, but women, they want to talk to Eve. But I want to read you something here, and this might, maybe, maybe this might, if you feel that way, maybe this will change your mind, because we don't think about this in this way a lot. Through Adam and Eve, the sin nature was passed on to mankind one birth at a time, from their first child right up until the babies that were born today, as we speak. But unlike every other human being that has ever lived and breathed, Adam and Eve suffered a misery that none beside them have had to suffer. Every single pain, every single twitch, every contraction that Eve ever endured during childbirth was a reminder to her that she was personally responsible for that agony. She caused that to come on herself. From her first child to her last. Now Genesis chapter 5 verse 3 says, And Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. And the days of Adam, after he had begotten Seth, were 800 years, and he begat sons and daughters. And all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Now we know that after Cain was banished to Nod, one of his descendants, a man named Lamech, was the first man ever to take two wives. So for 900 or so, and 30 years or so, the Bible says that Adam begot sons and daughters, and Eve gave birth to every single one of them. Adam didn't have no other wives. Now we don't know how many that is. But that's beside the point. Every single birth that she lived through and suffered through was a reminder to her that she was personally responsible for what she was going through. Every single one of them. Not only was her pain and suffering her responsibility, but every time she heard the screams and the cries of another woman giving birth, she was reminded that she was personally responsible for that pain because of her sin. Every time she had to rebuke or discipline an unruly child was a reminder to her that she was personally responsible for the rebellion that it was showing. Every time Adam and Eve got scratched by a thorn or a briar as they walked through a field was a reminder that they were personally responsible for that because the curse came on the earth. Cursed was the grain on Adam's behalf. Thorns and thistles came out, weeds, briars, and all that stuff. Every time Adam saw a drop of sweat fall off his forehead, was a reminder that he was personally responsible. Some men say that modern man would never have to hold jobs if it weren't for Adam and his sin. But he was created, and the Bible says, to dress and keep the garden. Adam was always intended to work, but the work would not have been a fight like it is now. Every weed he had to pull, every time he had to plow on a sun-baked ground, every time he had to fight the earth for the food that he needed to survive, it was a reminder. As the children came and the generations passed, Adam and Eve had to stand by and see the pain and the suffering and the misery of the lives of all of those that they had parented and were acutely aware that all of the suffering of all those around them was their personal responsibility. They were personally responsible for that. Every single day of their lives, they were reminded that the single worst decision any human being had ever made was made by them. Now, that day in the garden, so many years ago, when Eve was approached by Satan, he assured her that what God had told her was not true. 
that she would not die if she ate of the fruit of the, of the tree. And in reality, she did not suddenly drop dead after eating the fruit. But surely death would come to her at some point. But in the meantime, day in and day out, on the inside, she would die a thousand deaths in her lifetime, watching the suffering of all of her children as their lives played out. And above all things, maybe even the punishment worse than all others, was the day when because of jealousy and rebellion, one of their firstborn children, Cain, violently murdered his brother Abel. The sin that Adam and Eve ushered into the world together had ultimately led to the destruction and the death of their own child. This act of hatred, selfishness, and greed no doubt caused them both more grief and heartache than anything else they experienced in their lifetimes. A horrible reminder, again, that they were personally responsible. All of us sin. We all bear that sin nature, but none of us consider, nor can we consider, the pain and the heartache that we inflict upon those around us because of our own selfish and rebellious decisions. <coughs> Eve was visually enticed by a shiny object and the promise, the empty promise of receiving something that she did not possess. From concept to completion, her eating of the fruit and enticing her husband to do the same probably took less than 10 minutes. But over the next 900 or so years, how many millions and millions of times do you think it passed through Adam and Eve's mind if I had only known? If I had only known. So there's a little sympathy for Adam and Eve. I know that we want to we wanna blame them for everything, but nobody, no, none of us has ever had to live a life under that kind of, under under that kind of, I mean, just think of what that, just walking around under that every day, what that would have done to you, to look and to know that everything that humanity has suffered, every pain that they suffered, everything that happened to them, ever lost crop, ever failed rain, every, well, there wasn't rain in those days, it was due, but any, anything that went wrong, they knew out of all those people that were I mean, by the time Adam and Eve was 900 years old, there's no telling how many people were on the earth. But every single one of them belonged to them. I mean, they lived in a time when all these vast crowds, population around them, every single one of them belonged to them. And every single one of them was hurting and miserable and, and dying. And it was their fault. It was their responsibility. That's amazing when you think about it. All right, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 20. <coughs> in verse 23 it says, But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and afterward they that are Christ at his coming. Now in that one sentence, Paul jumped almost three, almost 2,000 years, over, way over 2,000 years in that sentence. This, the fact that guarantees the church will be resurrected one day in the future rests on the established fact that Jesus, the Christ, has already re been resurrected. He is the first fruits. Remember the law of the harvest. First fruits belong to God. They come first, and they're brought to the temple. Then comes the harvest, which we refer to as the rapture. And then finally the gleanings, and those that are redeemed through the tribulation period. The law of the harvest applies to, to everything that we go through. And, and, and as far as the resurrection and the end times, it applies to that. Christ is the first fruits, then comes the rapture, and then comes the tribulation period, which takes up the gleanings everything that's left behind on the ground and everything that wasn't gathered out of the corners. The, 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 the law of the harvest applies to that. In Romans chapter 6, it says, Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also 
should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. That's why we are obligated. We are not. If you get saved, you can make it to heaven without being baptized. It's not a requirement, but it is an obligation because it tells a story, because it signifies the death of this body and the resurrection coming back up out. That's why we, we, we dunk, we don't sprinkle, because we are buried. I mean, that emulates we are buried with him. We are put in the ground with him. And when we come up out of that water, we are changed with him. And we should also, Paul says, walk in newness of life because we're a new creature. We're changed. We're different. We're not the same person coming out of that water that we was when we went into it. Now, we're not any more saved. And if you get saved and don't get baptized, you're still going to make it to heaven. Because, again, it's not a requirement, but it is an obligation. We are obligated to get baptized. Because remember, when they first started baptizing people, Peter was baptizing everybody. I mean, they was baptizing people on the side of the road. Everywhere there was a puddle of water, they was baptizing somebody because people was getting saved right and left. And they immediately, that was their first reaction. Once people got saved, once Peter saw that the Holy Ghost had come to the Gentiles, he wanted to, we were talking about that this morning, he wanted to baptize everybody in Cornelius' house. And everybody could get his hands on. He was baptizing. So it's not a requirement, but it is an obligation. Because when we come up out of there, we're walking in newness of life. So that's signified. That's a signification. It's pointed. It's a testimony. It's an outward confession that we believe that Christ was buried and resurrected. And like him, we want to be buried and resurrected as well. And that is an outward, without saying it in verbal words, it is an outward expression of the belief that Jesus is the Son of God and that he did die and he is resurrected and come back to life. It's, it's a statement. It's, it's a confession that, that works that way. Verse 24. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and all power. Now, in one single sentence, Paul has vaulted across centuries of time. He went from the resurrection of Christ in approximately 33 A.D., past the 2,000 years that it's been up to this point now, past the seven years of Daniel's 70th week, past the 1,000-year millennial reign. So in that one sentence, Paul covered way over 3,000 years. He went from the resurrection of Christ all the way to the throne, to the judgment, to the, to the great throne judgment. Uh, <coughs> And he landed somewhere in the vicinity, somewhere in the vicinity of the Great White Throne Judgment, at least three thousand years. That's quite a time hop in that one single verse. Listen to it again. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, he being Jesus, when he, Jesus, shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. Verse twenty five it says, For he must reign until he hath put all enemies under his feet. A different way to word that is, Jesus must reign till Jesus places all of his enemies under his feet. Jesus has been given all power and all authority for the time being. He's going to lay that down at some future point in time. But for the time being, all that power 
and all that authority belongs to him. And he has to reign until that happens. He has to reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. Psalms 110 says this. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. That's Christ. That's his son. That's Jesus. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning thou hast to do with thy youth. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up the head. And again in Psalms 2 it says this, Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son. This day I have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give unto thee the heathen for thine utter inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, S-O-N. This is in the Psalms now. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. And then at the end, he always throws in redemption. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Jesus is going to rule. He's coming back. He's going to rule. He's going to tread. He's going he, to tread the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of his father. He's coming back to judge and to trample the earth, to slay his enemies and to trample his enemies. He's not. The world is expecting this tie-dyed hippie Jesus that's going to come back and set up a commune where we're all going to sit around and sniff flowers all day and smoke dope or whatever, whatever it is they got planned for this communal living. But that Jesus, that Jesus don't exist. That Jesus ain't coming back. The line of the tribe of Judah is coming back. The host of the armies of God is the one that's coming back. When Joshua saw him outside the, the, the walls of Jericho, when Joshua met Jesus, he was dressed in full battle array. He told Joshua, take your shoes off because you're standing on holy ground. And Joshua said, are you for us or are you against us? And he said, I am the host. I am the captain of the host of the armies of God. He was there to fight. And when he comes back again, he's coming back to fight. And when he comes back to fight, he's going to trample. He's described in several places in the Bible as having his vesture dipped in the blood. He's dripping. When he comes back, he's dripping with the blood of his enemies where he's trampled them and stomped them under his feet. When he makes his enemies his footstool, he's not talking about sitting in a chair and resting his heels on them and watching MTV. He's literally trampling them into the ground. He's been promised that by his father. Because you think about what he stands and listens to all day and all night, every day and every night. Because he hears every voice on the face of the earth that scorns, that does not believe, that mocks, that scoffs, that makes fun of him. 
that, 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 that tells funny jokes or funny stories, that uses his name in vain. Every time these things happen, he's standing there, he has to listen to that. These people, that his enemies speak out against him. They hate him. They are the sons of their father, the devil, and they hate him, and they are his enemies. They're his children, but they have decided to be his enemies, and he will come, and he's coming to slay his enemies. The world is going to be, when he gets done, when he gets ready, like Zechariah says, when he gets ready to build that temple that he's going to sit in for during the millennial reign, the world is going to be a bloody place. It's going to be a nasty, bloody place because Ezekiel, way back in Ezekiel's days, God told Ezekiel, said, you prophesy to the birds, and you tell the birds that at the supper of the great God, you're all going to migrate to the Middle East because you're going to eat the flesh of kings. You're going to eat the flesh of the armies, and you're going to eat the flesh of the horses that they rode on. All the enemies of God are going to be fed at the great supper. There's two big suppers coming. One of them is the marriage supper of the Lamb that we're going to partake of in heaven, and the other one is the supper of the great God when all the enemies of Christ are trampled and laying on the earth. And then he feeds all the birds. And the, the fact that Ezekiel spoke that, that into the birds back then, that's where migratory patterns come from. That's how they know to go places and to be places at certain times of the year because that's built into them. Because within them is that prophecy that Ezekiel put into the air 2,500, 3,000 years, however long ago it's been, and it's never been fulfilled. And those birds, the fowls of the air for all these millennia, have carried that prophecy around in their bellies. And one of these days they're going to use it because they're all going to take flight and they're going to migrate all to the Middle East. It's going to be a sight to see. It's going to be something. But he, but he is, when he's coming back, he is coming back to trample his enemies. And, and the God the Father has promised him. That's a promise that he made to his son. Right there in Psalms chapter 2, he said, you are, this, this, you are my son, and you will sit, you will rule, you will rule your enemies with a rod of iron, and you will do it from my holy hill in Zion. It's not, it's the hippy-dippy Jesus ain't, he don't exist. He's not coming back. Don't let people fool you about this. Verse 26, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Now, after Satan is cast into the lake of fire, then comes the great white throne judgment. And all the unrighteous dead will be raised from the earth and from the sea. And they will stand before the throne of God and will receive their sentence of eternal punishment based on all of their works while they are still alive. Cain will be in that group, as well as every single person who has ever died unsaved or outside the law. When that is done, hell itself, as we know it right now, the vast expanse of space inside the belly of the earth, where these souls have been stored until now, will be cast into the lake of fire. And the very last thing that God does while he's on the great white throne of judgment is to cast death into the lake of fire. Revelation 20, verse 11. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Let me read that again. The dead were judged according to those things which were written in the books according to their works. Whether we're saved or whether we're not, every single word that we speak out loud and every single thing that we do 
is recorded. It is written down. When Proverbs says that the power of life and death is in the tongue, then it's, it's speaking truth because when we speak something out loud, that's recorded. It's recorded in heaven. It's written down in a book. And one of these days we're going to stand, these people are going to stand before these books, and somebody's going to look in these books, and they're going to say, here you are. And they're going to start reading this stuff off. Well, that's going to take a long time. Well, we got forever. we got forever to stand there and do that. And we have good bodies, so we can stand there a long time. We won't get tired. We won't need to sit down. I won't have to have a stool or a fake leg. None of that. No false teeth. None, none of that. We'll, we'll be able to stand it. It's going to take a long, long time, but we'll be able to take it because we got nowhere else to go at that point. That's it. <laughs> We've arrived when we get there. They haven't. Now, by the way, this takes place on earth. Daniel says that the Ancient of Days cast his throne down to the earth. I always, for years, I, I, I taught that the only time that people in hell will get to see heaven is at the great white throne judgment until I finally realized it got through this thick skull that Daniel said God cast his throne to the earth. This great white throne judgment is taking place here on the earth. So they're not going to make it there. They're just going to make it right back to here, and they're going to hop from here straight into the lake of fire. So that's what happens at this judgment. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell deliver up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And that's the second death, of course, because these people have all already died. They died a natural death, and they spent this time, this waiting period in hell. Uh, the, the Lazarus we talked about this morning, Lazarus and the rich man. That rich man that was in hell, he was in hell then, he's in hell now. And when they come out to be judged at the great white throne judgment, he's going to be the one of the ones that come out. That's it. They're there. They're stored. They don't go anywhere else. They don't die. They don't get destroyed. They don't get burned up. A lot of, lot of modern-day teaching today says that, that hell just, you burn up and go away. Well, that's not, what, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that the stench and the smoke of the fire goes up forever and ever. It goes up. They're, they're never. They're, they're, they're tormented day and night forever and ever, the Bible says. There ain't no burning up. Now, in the millennium, in the thousand-year millennium reign, we learn that men will continue sinning throughout the thousand years. Sin will have to be dealt with to the, even to the point of execution. Satan loses his influence over the nations, but still through his minions continues to entice individuals to sin against God. The wages for sin then, just as they are now, is death. Unrepentant sin always has and always will result in death, beginning with the Garden of Eden. And on this glorious day, somewhere in our future, when death is cast into the lake of fire, sin will have come to an end. Death is the paycheck that we earn through the work of iniquity that we perform. When death is eradicated completely and thrown into the lake of fire for all eternity, sin in all its forms will be no more found. Once death is cast into the lake of fire, the sin nature that is born into all of us will no longer be. There will eventually come a point in the not-so-distant future as, as eternity rolls on and life continues to expand and to increase. Generation after generation of people will be born and live forever, never having any idea what sin is or what it was like to have lived under the burden of it. There's coming a point in time when there will be generations born not with the sin nature. The sin nature will be gone. Free choice 
will never go away. That's why there has to be judgment during the millennial reign. That's why when we rule, we, we, Christ says that we're going to rule with him with a rod of iron for during his thousand-year millennial reign. That's what we're ruling over. Not sin, but free choice. Sin will still be here, but it will eventually go away. Am I confusing anybody thoroughly? Is everybody thoroughly confused about what I'm saying? There's coming a point when sin, as we know, it's going to stop. But the ability to choose to do wrong stuff will never go away. We will always be creatures of free will. We will always have a choice. That makes sense? Am I I talking in circles? Y'all get me? But sin, as we know it, when Satan is put cast into the bottomless pit. Now remember, the book of Revelation, I teach the whole book of Revelation. Revelation says that the dragon was cast out and there was war in heaven. And the dragon was cast out and all his minions and they were cast to the ground. Now that war in heaven don't mean that Satan and, and, and Lucifer and, and Michael, the, the warring angels, are going to have a wrestling match in front of the throne of God. That's not what that means. War in heavens is the fact that the, the, the dominions, what we call demons or, or wicked spirits now, they can move. They can travel. They can move around within, within the heavenlies. Satan can still pass back and forth between the earth and the heavenly heaven. He can still approach the throne of God. He has access. All of his minions, all of his demons travel through the air. But when Satan is cast into the pit, according to Revelation 12 and 13, they're going to be cast to the ground. The de- what we know as demons now are going to be earthbound. And they're not going to be under the influence of Satan who is in the pit. They're going to be, they're going to be working, uh, operating under their own power. The power of suggestion, which is literally all that they have now. But they have the power of suggestion of Satan behind them. But he's going to be bound during this time, and they're going to be earthbound. So this is all going to still be here. I know I've confused everybody, haven't I? I mean, <laughs> I'm trying not to. I'm trying, <laughs> I'm trying to explain the, 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 the best that I can. The demons, as we know it, can travel in the air. They have access to the heavenlies. They don't have access to heaven anymore. Satan does. But they have access to the heaven. They travel back and forth. They travel between us. When you see a medium on TV, and this medium's talking about, you know, I'm talking, I got your uncle on the line or whatever, and he's telling this guy, he's telling me, you know, he's proud of you, blah, 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 blah. That's a demon. That's a demon that knows all about this person that's speaking to this medium or this psychic or this magician or whatever necromancer, whatever he wants to call himself. That's a demon speaking and operating through that person that knows all about Uncle Frank. It's not Uncle Frank. And there's not, no, there's not no warm and fuzzy about it at all. It's demonic activity, the Ouija board, all that stuff. That's all demonic activity. And all that stuff is banished in the Old Testament under, under death. You, you, you're to be killed immediately if, you got, if you're caught practicing any kind of witchcraft or astrology, astrology or reading signs or keeping up with planets, any, any of that, anything like that. The, the Old Testament is very plain. It says you shall not allow a witch to live. Period. You don't let her live. You get that evil out from among you. But we, in our modern day society, we love it. We read our horoscopes every day, and we watch the, the, the psychics, and we call the psychic hotline. And, you know, I used to joke in the church I used to go to. Somebody called the psychic hotline to find out what kind of service we're having today. They used to ask preacher. I had one time. But, but, but we, we take all this stuff for granted. 
all the stuff that we just willingly, openly participate in, the Bible says you don't let them people live. You shall not suffer them to live. You can't do it. Now I've lost my total place totally and completely. Verse 27, in, in back in 1 Corinthians 15. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. Let me reword that. For God has placed all things under Jesus' feet. Under authority, that is. Speaking of authority, rule, and power. But when God says all things are under or made subject to Jesus and his authority, it is apparent or it is obvious that God is the exception to that particular rule. Since God is the one who placed all things within the authority of Jesus, his son. You see what I'm saying? He says all things are going to be placed under him except for the Father. Jesus has authority over every single thing else. He has all authority and all rule and all power except authority over the Father. An example of this, John 5 and 26 says this, For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. And hath given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the son of man. Now contrast this with this. In John 5, Jesus said, I can of my own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is, ju and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father which has sent me. Luke 22 and 42 says, saying, Father, if thou be willing... Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. There is no contradiction here in the Scripture. There is no contradiction of Scripture in the whole Bible. What these Scriptures do highlight, though, is that there is a clear and distinct difference in the personages of God and Jesus Christ. Also, there is a distinction in the wills of one versus the other. Jesus was 100% God as well as 100% man. This was necessary for Jesus to have been legitimate in his claim that he was tempted and overcame all things, not only as a man, but as a son of God. He possessed the power to exert his will over the fathers, but like all of us, he had to willingly submit and subject himself to the will of the Father over his own comfort and choices. The Apostle Paul is explaining to us here that although God the Father gave Jesus all power and all authority over all things, he, the Father, did not place himself in subjection to Jesus the Son. He is the exception to that rule. In verse 28 it says, And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son of Man also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him that God may be all in all. Now that reworded says, and when all things are finally subdued and made completely subject to Christ Jesus, then Jesus will relinquish all power and all authority back to the Father. He will become completely subject and submissive to the Father who gave him the power in the first place. This way, God will once again be all. And all. Now that has to work that way for a particular reason. 
in Genesis 1 and 26, it says, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Now remember when that was spoken, when that was written down, Jesus hadn't been born yet. So the Bible says that God is a spirit. And we know that the Holy Ghost is a spirit. So until Christ came to earth and was born, he also was a spirit. He had to take on mortal flesh. There's a false doctrine out there called eternal sonship that believes that he was always flesh, that he was just regenerated back to baby form and came back to life. But that's not true. Isaiah said that Jesus had Isaiah said Jesus had to learn the difference between right and wrong. He had to be corrected when he was a child. He didn't pull an oath at five years old. Mary said, do this. And he said, oh, I'm God. I ain't got to do nothing. I ain't got to do that. No, I'm, you don't know who I am. Do you know who you're messing with? And there was none of that. There was none of that going on. That, didn't, that did not happen. He had to learn the difference between right and wrong. He had to be corrected as a child. And then Paul also says that he learned through his suffering. Just like we learned through his suffering. He learned, he learned, he didn't just, I mean, we just, we just accept and assume that Jesus just came to earth with the whole total package and it was all the whole package the whole time. Even in some of the, the lost books of the Bible, it talks about when Jesus was a kid, he would get in foot races with kids and they would be out running him and he would kill them and win the race and then come back and bring them back to life. Or that they would, and there's stories in there about how they would make clay pigeons and clay birds and bring them to him, and he'd hold them in his hands and bring them to life. And see, that's that's a crock. That's not that, that, that is that's not true. Jesus didn't even receive the Holy Spirit until the day John the Baptist baptized him, and John saw it come down. He said, "I looked and I saw the Spirit come down from heaven." And later on, it said that Jesus got full measure. He got the he got the full. And Paul's talking about. The spiritual gifts and the things that we can say, Jesus had 100% full measure. But at the same time, if he wasn't completely man, then he couldn't legitimately claim that he was tested and overcame. Because if God got tested and overcame, who's going to believe him? Well, you're God. Of course, of course you can go 40 days without eating. You're God. Of course you can do that. Of course you can do all those things. You're God, but that, that's not it. If he was not 100% man, just like we are, then he had no legitimate claim to the temptations. But he does have legitimate claim to them, and he did overcome them because he is that man. But he's walking around with the full measure of the Spirit, which makes him also 100% God, all in one package. We couldn't do that. We could, I couldn't. I, I, I don't, I, I'm glad none of us have, has to do that. So that's what he's explaining here. He's explaining and, and, and pulling out this difference, and it's making a big difference between because there's a lot of there's a lot of anti-Trinity people in the world. There's a lot of oneness Jesus only people. That, that, you know they don't they, they don't want to believe in the Trinity. They don't believe it's that way. But the Bible, it had to be that way. It had to be there had to be a God, there had to be a Son, there had to be a a, a, a sacrifice, and there has to be a Spirit that operates between the two. Um, part one of the Godhead has to be a righteous judge. There had to be a judge. He judges the earth, and he formed the law by which mankind should operate and use to control himself. Mankind became mankind. No matter how strict or lenient the law was, he would be incapable of living up to it. 
Adam and Eve, again, had one simple rule, not to eat of this one tree. And in spite of the fact that the Garden of Eden was full of trees that were full of fruit, they couldn't stand to not eat the one off of that tree. And any one of us would do exactly the same thing because, because of the humanity, the humanity that's there. So God, so God said mankind is sinful in its nature, and it cannot approach me. So he said, I've got to figure out a way for mankind to be able to approach me. And the way that mankind can approach God is the law. Through the law, that's what he established. Remember, Jesus said, I didn't come to change the law. Because today, right now, today, the only way to approach a righteous and holy God is through his rules, his commandments, which is his law. Jesus came to fulfill the law, not to change the law, because the law is still the only way that mankind can approach a holy God. That don't mean we bring sac- that don't mean sacrifices. Understand what I'm saying? The difference is that's still the rule book. That rule book still stands. We didn't do away with the Old Testament. We didn't do away with the law. We didn't get a new God. That God didn't retire. That God that slayed and killed and demanded all them people be all that, all that genocide take place. That's the same God that we that's right here right now. It's the same one. He ain't changed. He didn't retire. He didn't change his mind. He didn't get soft. He didn't, none none of those things. None of those things. It's the same. We serve the same God. And his rule still applies. The only way mankind can approach him is through the law. Now, because we could not keep the law, he went a step further. And he said, I'm not going to change the law, but I'm going to send you a way that you can, without doing it yourself, approach me through the law that became his son part two of the godhead because there had to be a blood sacrifice for that to be right for that to be good and true and for it to work there had to be a blood sacrifice there's no remission of sin without shedding of blood that is a requirement that a righteous god has made and he ain't changed his mind about that no sacrifice of any innocent animal was ever suitable to remove the sin of mankind There was only one worthy, suitable, acceptable sacrifice that would completely take away the sins of mankind. And that was the sacrifice of God himself. Therefore, the rock was cut out of the mountain, and it was sent to earth in the form of a man-child. This all-God, all-man baby grew up to become the one that saved the world. The only way that mankind could receive redemption in the eyes of God the Father was to accept and believe on the sacrifice of the Holy One, God the Son, Christ Jesus. No man can come to the Father except through the Son, and no man can approach the Son unless he is drawn by the Father. You cannot have only one of these and make it work. You've got to have both of them. You've got to have all three parts, actually. Both of these are requirements for salvation to even happen. And part three of the Godhead is, of course, the Holy Ghost. The law was given to man by God. Jehovah instructed Moses in the law, who then took the law to the people. Commandments and regulations, as well as description of buildings and and instruments that were used to represent God, were given to Moses. The law was written down several times. Copies were made and kept on hand at all times. A particular family bloodline, Aaron and his sons, were set aside and dedicated to all the instruction and the carrying out of the work of the law, keeping the tabernacle, maintaining all the accoutrements, 
keeping the fires lit, keeping the animals cut up and cooking on the fire, teaching the law to the younger generations. All these things were maintained around the clock, day in and day out, year in and year out by this line of priests, men who were assigned this work and responsible for getting it done. Once the work of part two of the Godhead, the lamb that was slain, was finished, the temple was destroyed, and the sacrifices were stopped. We no longer have a temple, and we no longer make sacrifices because we now have the one and only acceptable sacrifice if we choose to accept that ourselves and believe it and confess it. That's all it takes. It's not that the law was changed. It's not that the blood requirement was made any less or anything was different. It's just that Jesus did that for us. He did that work for us. <coughs> this meant that life for a believer no longer revolved around the temple and the law. Men could stray easily and become lost quickly. Jesus, the man who could only occupy the space of a single human being, was never intended to remain on the earth until the end. See, we don't think about him that way. He's God. But we don't think about him as being in the form of a man, and he could not be everywhere at one time. He had to occupy the space of one man. He was never intended to come and stay because you couldn't come to him unless the Father draw you, and you couldn't come to the Father except through him. And there had to be a form of communication with those two that worked with those two to accomplish those both of those things that were required for man to be saved, and that is the Holy Ghost. He's the one that does the drawing. He's the one that comes to us. He's the one that covers the face of the earth. He's there all the time. A system whereby all men everywhere could continue to be reminded and guided and instructed in the ways of the Father was needed. And this system was already in place. The Holy Ghost was active all through the Old Testament in the work of the prophets and also in the leadership of the priests. All that was needed now was for the Holy Ghost to become available for use by all men everywhere. And Jesus made this promise to his apostles that he had to go away, but he would send another one, the Holy Ghost, the Comforter, who would teach all men all things. Therefore, because of sin, which separates man from a holy God, there had to be created a way to restore man back to God. This was the sacrifice of God himself. In the image and the flesh of man, for this to happen had to be born of a woman, 100% God and 100% man in one body. Once Jesus' blood was shed and his sacrifice was made, Man could once again approach God on his own. However, he could only do this through the blood of Christ. The only way to God was through Jesus. And the only way to get to Jesus is to be drawn by God. And the only way you can be drawn by God is by the Holy Ghost. It takes all three. No two of these things can work that work. Any, pick any of the two you want, and it, and it can't work. It, you've got to have all three. They're all three separate beings. They're all three separate entities. But without the other two, one won't work. Or without the third, two won't work. It has to be those three. Once sin is eradicated, there will no longer be any need for anyone to be redeemed or restored. And everyone will be eternally in right relationship with God. No sin equals no separation from God. The absolute and total work of the salvation plan for man will be 100% complete. The reason Jesus and the Holy Ghost were given separate works and separate powers and authority will no longer exist. At this point in time, all that power and all that authority can be returned to God the Father, who will once again be all in all, which he hasn't been 
since the day Adam sinned in the garden. Now the word in, all in all, this phrase all in all, the word in is translated from the Greek word, guess what, en, in. And it means it's used 2,800 times in the New Testament. 1,800 of which mean inside, on the inside. It's also translated as with, among, by, and beside, and alongside of. When Paul says in verse 28 that God may be all in all, it literally means that once again God can be himself among all his people like he was at one time. There was a time when God was with his people. He walked among them on a daily basis. In Genesis 3 and 8 it said, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Now in the days of Cain, after Cain slew Abel, when sin and open rebellion increased throughout the land, there came a point in time when God could no longer walk among his people. He could not be here any longer. And men were required to cry out to him instead of to, uh, speaking with him face to face. Genesis 4 and 25 says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son and called his name Seth. For God, said she, hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, who Cain slew. And to Seth, to him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord, because God could no longer come to the face of the earth. He couldn't be down here anymore. Now, when we reach the stage that Paul talks about and describes as God being all in all, in the Bible it says this, Revelation 21, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, saw John, and I John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Now there shall be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. In the final days of Christ himself builds a temple with his own hands, wherein he sits forever on the throne of his father David. In Zechariah 6 it says, And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch. Now we know that's Christ. That is Jesus. His name, that's one of his names that he has, the branch. And he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne. And he shall be a priest upon his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both, them both being him and the throne, together, ruling as one. Also, God the Father in the last days will bring his heavenly throne to the earth. In Daniel 7, I behold, till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was like a fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand, thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him and the judgment was set and the books were opened and I beheld them because of the voice of the great words which the, which the horn spake 
I beheld even till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. That is, of course, the ruination of Satan and the casting of him into the lake of fire. So at that point in time, God the Father will be reunited with his wife, Israel. And Christ the Son will be married to his bride, the church. And at that point in time, Jesus will lay down his authority. He will put everything down. And once again, God, like in the beginning, can walk among his people. And he can be our all in all, which now he cannot be. Any questions or comments? No, go ahead. He will always, yeah, he will always be in that form. He will forever be. No, 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 he's always, okay, I, I, I think I see what you're saying. He, he's always going to be the Christ. He's always going to be the Son of God. It's just that right now, God has said, look, it's like God looked at him and said, okay, you got it. And God is not going to interfere with any decision that he makes or anything that he does as far as controlling and ruining and destroying his enemies because they literally are his enemies. David says the closest thing we have to a sinner's prayer is, is Psalm 51. And in there David says, and this is after David's sin, after Bathsheba, after Uriah, after all that he had done, David said, against you, and you alone have I sinned. So Jesus tries to explain to us through parables in the gospel that people don't sin against Kent Wiggins. People will use Kent Wiggins to break God's law. He w they, will they will get mad at Kent Wiggins and do things that are outside the law of God or against the law of God, but they're not. The hardest thing for us to understand as a human being is they're not sinning against me. None of this wrath is going to be ours. You know, when we come, when we accompany Jesus in Revelation 19, when he gets on his horse and he comes back to earth to fight the battle of Armageddon, we're going to be with him. But it's, don't, don't mistake it. The Bible says he will slay his enemies with the sword of his mouth, not with the sword of his armies. We're not going to be running around behind him and killing people and taking they, They're his enemies, and their destruction was promised to him by God the Father. But he will always have that form. In other words, God's not going to question any decision he makes except for Christ is not going to be able to usurp any authority that God's not willing to give up. He, In other words, he took exception of himself in that one rule. That's why he said it, that he is the exception to that rule. But at the same time, he's not going to stop him. All authority and all power and all decisions have been given and granted to him to exercise. 
He still is right now. He's still in he's his exact same form that he was in when he left the, temp, the, the Mount of Olives, when the eleven stood there and watched him go. If, if, he could, if he walked through that door right now, he would look just exactly to us right now like he did to them the day he left the earth. It is hard to. Right. Yeah. He accepts that. I mean, there's a there's a point in, in Revelation five, at, at his coronation, when it describes when when it says that in the midst of the throne that there was a a, a scroll held out, and and nobody would come forth and get the scroll. Remember, and the angels were crying, and John started crying because nobody was stepping up to get the scroll. John knew who Jesus was. He knew what Jesus was supposed to do. He didn't say Jesus was derelict in his duties. He said nobody's stepping forward to get the, to get the scroll. And it finally says that, that Jesus, from the midst of the throne, stepped up as the lamb that was slain, and he accepted that scroll. Now, his hesitation in the WKW version of the Bible, which ain't in the Bible, but his hesitation was in the fact that to accept that scroll was yeah, it was to accept all the power and all the authority that God had and to accept everything that God had to offer. But along with that, he had to accept the responsibility that he's fixing to start slaying millions and millions and millions of people that he created. That's where his hesitancy comes from. But the fact is, at the end of the day, he stepped forth and accepted that responsibility. And that's a lesson to us because there's things that we that we deem unseemly or uncomfortable. There's situations where we don't want to witness to people. We don't want to say we don't want to say things that we're hesitant in our authority. But the fact of the business is, we are to grasp that scroll. We are to grasp this word. This is our scroll, and along with that, the, the along with that authority comes the great responsibility of what it actually means. Because we literally are dealing in life and death situations. Because the difference, the difference between a lost soul and a saved soul could very well be us asking somebody what time it is. Or do they have change for a dollar? I mean, it literally could come down to that. The Bible says to be ready at all times. To instantly be ready to, give an account, to, to, to tell of the good things that live within you. Be ready to preach instantly at all times. The Bible says Jesus was given full measure. I don't. I don't think. I don't think the full measure to that point is available to to normal human beings. Well, we can we can accept we can accept a lot of it, but we're not going to get we're not going to get full measure. But there's there's way more of it that we can accept that we don't. Uh, no, no. No, and, and not, not only did it not have the same amount, because, because the Bible specifically said faith is one of those gifts. Faith is a spiritual gift. When you get to the point when you can look at good in a mountain and say, be thou removed into St. Clair County, that's possible. But at the same time, you gotta ha there's got to be a good reason why good in a mountain needs to be plucked up and moved to the other side of St. Clair County. In other words, it's the will of God that does it, but... Not even if that was God's will, not just anybody can walk up and do that. There's a, there's a measure of faith. Everybody's given a measure of faith. The Bible says, 
And that faith is, that measure of faith that we're given can be used to believe in God. Past that, faith grows. It expands. Every time Every time you use your faith, to, if you, you ask something of God and you get it, that increases your faith. That increases the power of your faith. And that gives you that much more boldness to next time ask for the even bigger, and we're not talking about bigger cars and bigger jets. That's not what I'm talking about. But it's more and more things that need to be done. Because there are men walking the face of the earth that had the, had the capability of literally cleaning out hospitals. But they don't go in and do it because it's not God. He says you do it at the direction of the Holy Ghost. You do it at his discretion. Not just, we don't get powers of the Holy Ghost so we can do parlor tricks at the, you know, for drinks at the bar. That's not, that's not why we get, it's not magic. God's not a magician. It's not a magic trick. It's for the edification of the church. So, for little is known, little is required. And, and with, with great knowledge comes great responsibility just in the Word of God, just like in everything else. And God's got to trust you before He's going to give you the kind of gift that will allow you to literally move a tree or a car or a mountain. He's got to trust you with that power. And everybody don't get the same amount of power or the same station. I mean, He says in the, in the teaching that there's, there's different gifts. There's different diversities of gifts, and there's di- all these things are used. He says everybody don't speak in tongues. Everybody don't heal the sick. Everybody don't preach. Everybody don't teach. Everybody's given different things and different measures. And that is up, that's strictly up to the Holy Ghost what you get. And that literally depends on how much we want. I mean, there's no, there, there's no, there's no end to that. As long as we're a, a, a useful, trustworthy vessel, He'll keep dumping that stuff in us. He'll keep pouring it in us, and we'll be like Peter. I mean, Peter was a—he was a walking lighthouse. He walked by people, and the shadow healed them. He didn't ask him. He didn't say nothing to them. He just walked by them, and the shadow cast on them, healed them, and them laying on the side of the road. That's power. The only way to him is through Jesus. And the only way to come to Jesus is if God draws you. Draws you, drags you. That, 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 that word translated draw literally means drags. Unless he drags you to him. The Holy Ghost, through the power of the Holy Ghost, he will drag you to him. If, if anybody else in here besides me, you know, got saved a million times and got saved every Saturday night after a drunken brawl, you know the difference between kneeling down and saying, God, forgive me, and actual repentance. That, there, there's a bit, there's huge difference in, you know, God, forgive me so I can make it to work the next day, and God, forgive me for what I've done. Big difference there. He does the work. He's the one that does it. He's the one that drags you. Holy Ghost will drag you there by the hair of the head. He draws you. Draw. D-R-A-W. Draw. Draw. He'll drag you. Yes. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, that comes from Daniel.